The following quote is from Mike Wilson's calmly titled, The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison helped make the software business what it is today, viciously competitive, sporadically honest, shamelessly hyperbolic, and fabulously profitable. Larry Ellison can also be summed up in a story he told to Mike Wilson while writing that book. While walking through Beverly Hills, Larry saw a house for sale for the princely sum of $4 million. Even though it was after sunset, he contacted the realtor on the sign and arranged to have the house bought that very day. Larry then went inside the house and had sex with his girlfriend. He then put the house on the market. When Mike Wilson looked into the fact that Larry Ellison had bought a house simply to have sex in it, he contacted the realtor, who confirmed that Larry had bought the house, but not in the middle of the night, and had held on to the house for more than 24 hours. Larry Ellison had made up a story about buying a house in the middle of the night just so he could fuck, so that Larry Ellison would seem that much cooler. That is not the coolest thing to do. <laughs> it would be cooler if he actually did it, but now that we know he's lying, that's that makes him seem lame. Oh, Colin. Do I have a story for you, then? <laughs> what reality he calls home? Luthor is Luthor. This is The Luthor Scale. Welcome to episode three of The Luthor Scale, where we compare successful people to supervillains, like the two guys from Clerks, minus the Hollywood good looks. I'm Colin. I'm Pat. Today's episode is about Larry Ellison, father of Project Oracle, and potential eternal. We definitely haven't proven that he isn't immortal. We can't, actually. No. <laughs> There's no realistic way to do so. No. The science just, we're not there yet. So we're going to look at Larry Ellison, where he came from, how he got his money, and why he's responsible for more of the world than you might think. It's going to be a really insightful episode. Hopefully, we you learn some things, you laugh a bit, you love a bit, and by the end, you've, you've lived a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Larry Ellison is not someone I was personally familiar with before I started reading about him. I am not. I mildly familiar i am yeah. not i am not he shows up on the wealthiest people lists big in silicon valley but not a household name the same way that elon musk or steve jobs right. or someone like that would have been less customer facing less in the public eye less in the public eye now he used to be very much in the public eye back in the 80s and 90s yeah but you know i had cartoons to watch so yeah i mean i i had gotten big into trees, like climbing them, falling out of them. Yeah, so I wasn't really. If paying, I had a I wasn't paying attention difference to like between me and you, it, that that would be it. CNBC. I didn't have time to watch that because I had like to learn to tie my shoes and stuff. So, Lawrence Joseph Ellison was born August seventeenth, nineteen forty four, in New York City. His mother was only nineteen at the time. Ellison was told that his biological father was an Air Force pilot who had shipped off to World War II before ever finding out about his son. His biological father's identity and fate are unknown. After a near-fatal bout of pneumonia at nine months, Larry was sent to live with his maternal aunt and uncle, Lillian and Lewis Ellison, in Chicago. 
As Larry tells it, Lewis was a penniless immigrant when he moved from Russia to the U.S. in 1905. His old world surname is not mentioned in any of the biographies I've read, but apparently the name Ellison is a tribute to the New York immigration depot Lewis passed through. Lewis moved to Chicago, amassed a fortune in real estate, and ran for Congress, only to lose the election and his fortune as the Depression hit. Ellison describes his neighborhood growing up as a Jewish ghetto. Ellison is ethnically Jewish and reported to Mike Wilson that, quote, there was a particular month in my neighborhood when notorious spree killer Richard Speck killed nine nurses. That's a weird brag. Weird brag. The thing you need to keep in mind about Larry Ellison, though, is that he has an extremely pragmatic relationship with the truth. Or, basically, Larry Ellison lies all the time about everything. Okay, so... About the Speck murders, then. <laughs> There's no record of Lewis Ellison ever running for Congress. Richard Speck, okay. <laughs> Richard Speck committed his murders miles away from Ellison's neighborhood. And more to the point, Ellison had already moved to California when they happened. Oh. As to the neighborhood Ellison grew up in, Mike Wilson writes, quote, What Ellison said about his past depended on when you talked to him. In 1994, he said, We didn't have money, but we weren't poor. Two years later, in an interview for this book, he said, we had no idea we were poor. Ellison's older sister, Doris, had a joke about the way he described his childhood. Every time she read an article about Larry, she said that the old neighborhood got worse and worse. As Ellison surely knew, his success was much more impressive if you believed he'd overcome adversity to achieve it. Yeah, playing into the, you know, age old thing of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and you know, it plays well. It's a, it's a nice little narrative. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, it, it, it also, you know, kind of loses its luster when you figure out that he just lies about everything. Yeah, when you actually look into it, it's, it's kind of a bummer because <laughs> you could just tell the truth. I mean, but the right, f- it's not that the truth is boring or is somehow that you feel the need to make it even more impressive. It gets belied by the fact that you're just making shit up <laughs> yeah I, I don't understand that i mean it just seems like a, yeah it just seems like a lot of mental sort of bandwidth just to to for something that already happened to you you could just you know sit there and recount it you know just do a simple recall instead he's like yeah the, you know making up the verify- know, how bad everything used to be. The verifiable facts of his life. I mean, born to a, a single teenage mom, almost died, had to move across the country to be raised by family, and where he is now. I mean, that's that's a pretty good story on its own. It's that, and you'll see this a lot about Larry Ellison. Uh, the truth is boring because it only breaks one way. There's only <laughs> one story to there's tell only, there's only the truth there's so. only the truth and oh okay larry oh larry he he needs to change the truth of it if it suits him he's a storyteller he's a storyteller larry ellison never finished college but during a short stint at the university of chicago he was required to program an ibm 1401 the first computer equipped with a transistor instead of vacuum tubes this turned into a part-time job doing early computer programming In 1966, Ellison packed up his Ford Thunderbird and moved to San Francisco. I'm going to make it big in the big city. You'll see. Yeah, I'm going to move to the the tiny hick town of Chicago. 
<laughs> go to San Francisco. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was that California dreaming in the sixties. I mean, if you know anything about Larry Ellison, he wants to be cool. And, and he just so isn't. Ah, well, I mean, there's some stuff about he, there's some so stuff far. about him that's more endearing to me than like Jeff Bezos. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like Larry Ellison is at least kind of fun to hang out with. But we'll let we'll let the listener be the ultimate judge of that. For the next few years, Ellison did odd programming jobs, but never stopped telling his friends and family that the next big thing was around the corner. One childhood friend recalled Ellison telling him that he had been accepted to the medical school at USC, which Ellison backed up by showing a copy of the acceptance letter. His first wife reported that Larry attended graduate school at Berkeley for, quote, the first few years of our marriage and was always carrying books around from class. As you can probably guess, neither school has any record of Ellison ever attending. See, this is what I'm talking about. It's the extra... It's the extra mental bandwidth. Like, he has to go and he's like, oh, yeah, I got to write that letter. And then once I, get, I write that letter, I can show that to th- this guy. And then, and then you know, I got I to gotta walk around like I got books. I got medical books because I'm going to medical school. I'm going to UC Berkeley. Like, I, like there's just so much layers That's... of, like, extra effort that I'm sitting here. And I'm like, wouldn't it have just been easier to be like, oh, yeah, I, I'm not going to college. That's the That's the thing about a guy like Larry Ellison that I can't. I know that I'm not like him because it's so much more work to keep the lie going. (laughs) (laughs) Like he has to be getting something else out of it, right? Like there has to be something else. Like he's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to graduate school at Berkeley. And then someone's like, Oh, that's really impressive. And all he has to do is, I guess, walk around with some books. But at some point he was at a dinner and someone was like, how is class going? And he just had to like ramble off stuff. And and you'll find Larry Ellison is great at rambling off stuff. <laughs> in 1973, Ellison got a job at Ampex, where three very important things happened. First, he met Bob Miner and Ed Oates, the programmers who had developed the software that would make Ellison a billionaire. Second, he moved from the, quote, monkish and antisocial programming department to the sales department, where Larry's gift of gab would prove unstoppable. As Mike Wilson writes, quote, Most of Ellison's success was not principally about technological innovation. Though Oracle would release some excellent products, Ellison himself did not build them. He provided direction and others built them. So I think, so this is where we kind of see, you know, an interesting parallel in in Musk and Ellison's stories where they both have programming experience. Like no one's going to take that away from them, but they are essentially, they came up and they were on the sales portion and we're seeing more of their charisma seems to be the, the thing that is launching them. Yeah. This as opposed is... to their, their hard, you know, research and effort in the fields of technology. Yeah. They know enough to know what they're talking about, but they're not personally trailblazing in their fields. Right. You know, they are salesmen. They are great at talking. They're great at branding. They're great at, reassuring customers that no this shit's gonna work eventually just trust me bud i wouldn't lie to you third ellison was assigned to work on a new kind of computer database that would be able to store a trillion bits of data an unthinkable number at the time oh it's gotten so much better or worse however you want to look at it well colin is your data stored on videotape uh this data was oh that's pretty cool actually this product This project, which was of great interest to the CIA, was named Project Oracle. 
Okay. But was it just because of the name? Was the CIA just interested in something called Project Oracle? Right. Like if we said, oh, this is Project Oracle and the CIA like got a hold of the fact that that was what the project was called, do you think they'd be like, that's, we want it. CIA, if you're looking for things to sponsor, <laughs> well, the, what about the, what about the Luther scale podcast? <laughs> We are willing to take your blood-stained money. <laughs> we got to pro- call it like Project Luther. <laughs> Project <scale>. Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're interested in it. Yeah. When Project Oracle ended up being a huge waste of time. Oh, well, that kind of takes the wind out of my sails there. Ellison jumped ship to become vice president of Precision Instruments. In 1977, Ellison was put in charge of hiring a programming company to do contract work on a new database project. Ellison searched far and wide before awarding the contract to a company founded earlier that year by Ed Oates, Bob Miner, and Larry Ellison. That is not a conflict of interest. The company was named Software Development Laboratories after the initial name Intergalactic Titanic Octopus was rejected. Yeah, I don't know what it is about these guys. Now I'm seeing another theme, which is like naming things. You know, Elon Musk is just very, he's just, he's just very immature to put it lightly. You can tell a lot of these guys were like huge Star Trek fans. (laughs) But like also, you know, Carlos later, not great at naming things. Carlos later never, well, Carlos later didn't have to (laughs) try and brand cocaine. It's addictive. Like. No, I understand that. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, now I'm seeing another string. SDL set to work creating what, up to that point, was only a computer theory, a functioning relational database. So, Colin, as the IT master on the Luther Scale podcast, I'm going to turn it over to you to yes, explain. The IT master of two people. What the fuck a relational database is. Uh, basically, if you have interacted with a company at any point, you have most likely used some kind of version of a relational database or an application that uses one. The idea is that you have a database that has a series of tables uh, with ideally, not always, uh, but ideally unique and non-duplicated data. So, and then these tables then relate to other tables via operational or conditional operators, uh, such as like one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many. And this allows people to, in theory, design systems that take up less space and are far more flexible. Uh, so if you wanted a system that tracks cars and car ownership, you could have a single table that contains people and car information. Uh, but then if a person owns more than one car, you would end up having their name in there a bunch of times, right? Yeah. Uh, so it would be better instead to have a table that contains people and a table that in, uh, that has cars and then you could have a one-to-many relationship where one person could theoretically own many cars, uh, but only one car is owned by one person. Yeah. So, and and I think one that get that gets to a a p- point that's universal is that the people who make the most money, you have no the f- fucking idea what they do. <laughs> uh, and then second, this is the kind of information management system that almost anyone would need for a company for an organization Mm -hmm. it's it's the kind of thing that's going to make computers accessible to everyday people not just scientists who are in the the field it's going to give businesses a a competitive edge and really i you know the this is the reason why 
you know, technology is the way that it is today. And I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here. You don't need to perfectly understand what Oracle and Larry Ellison are doing. The point is what Larry and his company are developing is the kind of thing that everybody is going to want a piece of once it's commercially available. So he's sitting on potentially a gold mine. So by 1978, SDL had completed its first relational database management system named Oracle after the CIA project that all three founders had met on. Speaking of which, the CIA was the company's first and best customer, followed closely by the intelligence department for the U.S. Navy. Of course they were. They wanted Project Oracle (laughs) and they got it. What began attracting even more customers was the fact that Oracle, according to Ellison, was portable software that could work on any operating system, or as Larry so erotically put it, promiscuous software. Well, that's, yeah. That's actually the the term that we use every day at work. It's, you know, oh, this software is promiscuous. Ooh. It's uh, definitely not weird to say right now. Through the 1980s, the company, now known as Oracle, began growing at an absurd rate, at a minimum doubling their revenue every year between 1979 and 1989. There was only one problem. The software didn't work. Oh, well, you know, as I've learned through my expertise in my long-standing career in IT, uh, that is not necessarily unique to Oracle. Version 1 of... Oracle's database was described by the company's own engineer as, quote, the Roach Motel of databases. (laughs) The users at the time described Oracle software as horrifically slow and with a tendency to eat data that was entered into it. It just loved to eat it. It Just give it to me. Ellison responded to these complaints in two ways. First, by lying. Ellison allegedly said to his chief programmer, quote, I cannot run the business and tell the truth to customers. I mean... Here's the thing. That statement, not a lie. <laughs> Second, Ellison responded by what can only be described as sales by negging. <laughs> as Ellison said out loud in the speech in 1996, here's our software. Use it. I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> as luck what would... if Musk tried to sell the Tesla that way? <laughs> Buy it, idiots. Buy, <laughs> Buy my car. I dare you. <laughs> As luck would have it, the federal government dared. (laughs) The CIA contact once told Oracle's sales team that they were, quote, buying an idea, not a product. In the midst of the Cold War, many people continued to deal with Larry Ellison because relational technology held so much promise. Yeah, I I can see that. Again, you know, when you're, you're talking about this technology and looking forward, you know, to where it is today, it. It is so much bigger than you think it is. It is so much more important than you think it is. Okay. Actually, there were two problems. (laughs) Ellison's obsessive focus on success at any cost had spread to the rest of the Oracle company, creating a level of workplace toxicity rarely found outside of a Scorsese film. (laughs) Ellison ran Oracle in what he described as, quote, management by ridicule. As one sales associate recalled, quote, You didn't dare turn your back at Oracle for fear that someone would stab it. There were people at Oracle who thought you were a lightweight if you asked them how their weekend was. That is, that is insane. Yeah. Imagine like someone just asking you, hey man, how was the barbecue that you said you were going to have last weekend? And they're like, oh, I'm going to fucking destroy. 
destroy it. I'm going to grind your bones into dust. What a beta you're question. Never, you're never going to make it here. Like, I mean, uh, okay. in, in fairness, that's how we run the Luther Scale podcast. Well, that is, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't. We don't talk outside We don't talk of this. outside of this. <laughs> so the pressure cooker of Oracle is best exemplified in the tragic story of Wayne Harvey. In 1986, Harvey, the head of product development, got into a heated argument with Ellison at a company meeting over Ellison's constant demands to have the Oracle software adaptable to any operating system. Harvey, who had a prior history of mental health issues, was demoted to the data center for his outburst and given the nickname Mass Murder by Ellison and the other executives. What the fuck? Harvey was eventually fired and shortly thereafter killed his five-year-old son with a handgun before turning it on himself. What? When asked about the murder-suicide by his former employee, Ellison said, and this is a direct quote, There was a meeting at Oracle when we started talking about Wayne. Bob Miner got up and said, well, Wayne was a really nice guy and a great guy in all of this. And I stood up and cut him off. I told Bob to sit down and shut up. I said that he could make up the world as he wanted to see it, but Wayne was not a nice guy. This is Larry Ellison at a company meeting, just absolutely dragging a dead employee over the coals. I'm just saying that if an employee did that, and it was directly related to stress at the workplace. If the employee you used to call mass murder murdered his family. Uh, it's just it's it's horrifically tragic and i feel like that it just the 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 callousness here just pushes larry like at first i was like oh like maybe he's just like a nerd and he wants to feel cool and like all that stuff and now i'm like fuck you okay so actually because of the two problems i've already talked about there was a third problem you're really starting to sound like larry here man the emphasis on growth at any cost, despite having a product that was spotty at best, had not only caused Oracle to routinely lie to its customers, but also routinely lie to itself. The database Oracle itself kept for customer records was routinely sloppy and incomplete, leading to constant billing problems. <laughs> but that didn't actually matter, because Oracle was also insanely nonchalant about collecting payment. Oracle's policy was that the amount agreed upon in the contract was to be recorded as revenue, regardless of whether the customer actually paid the money. That is super unethical. <laughs> Furthermore, the way Oracle's commission system was set up encouraged sales reps to get their numbers in before the end of the quarter, which led to a not insignificant portion of the reps simply signing the contracts as the customers before the customer had approved the deal. That That's like double unethical that's like yeah. two in two some for one in some countries that's called fraud <laughs> i'd say most obviously not here though because they were allowed to do this for as long as they did so all of this came to a head in 1990 when the new vp of finance stephen imbler decided to look at the books and found that 15 million dollars in revenue for that quarter alone did not exist in any meaningful way so they were reporting $15 million in revenue that they were not paid. That they did not have and that they could not confirm would be collected by the in that quarter. Amazing. Absolutely. This is mm. due to a fear that delicious due to a fear that publishing the inflated number would open them up to civil, if not criminal liability. Well, you know. Because it would. Because it would. <laughs> Oracle removed the Phantom sales from its earnings projection. This caused the stock price to tumble. On March 28, 1990, 
Ellison, whose fortune is made up almost entirely of Oracle stock, personally lost a third of a billion dollars in a single day. You know, as we've said before, and as we pointed out in the Elon Musk episode, stock, it has value. It is part of your wealth, but it is by no means a permanent fixture of your total wealth. It's it's make-believe to a large degree. <laughs> it is a promise between you and the company that you are entitled to an amount of profits. When $330 million just evaporates, that's, I mean, that's not, you don't actually have that money. You right. never had that money. But it still hurts. Oh, it still hurts, yeah. And uh, I still feel very much a a very large amount of shit uh schadenfreude schadenfreude yeah yeah in in seeing him lose that much uh but despite losing all that money all these problems were not enough to sink oracle the company was simply too entrenched in the modern world by 2001 Too too big to fail too big to fail by 2001, 98 out of the Fortune 100 companies used Oracle relational database software for their companies. Even in 2021, Oracle retains the largest market share of commercially available relational database systems. Oracle, at this point, is simply built into modern life. Yeah. And I mean, it, should, it shouldn't really come to a surprise. I'm sure there are some people that are like, oh my God, really? The skill set required for, you know, use of an Oracle database, it's almost required in today's IT world where you have to have some kind of understanding of how these things work uh, to to kind of work in that space. It is not surprising to me, but I think it's important to note, you know, for the listener that this is this technology is everywhere. And even if it is not Oracle itself, it is most likely an Oracle-like product. It is is similar. I mean, that explains why, even today, Larry Ellison is consistently rated in the top 10 wealthiest people on the planet. But that alone is not going to make him a Luther-scale alumni. No. You know, uh, there are lots of billionaires. We're There's not going to cover all of them. just keeps to themselves. Yeah, a lot of billionaires, you know. Warren Buffett only comes out, he comes out, he says something. Intern at the Wall Street Journal milks that for three weeks. So, and we're, and probably, we're probably going to cover Warren Buffett someday. But, oh, yeah. Uh, There's only so much content, man. Anyway, mere billionairehood does not get someone under the Luther scale. So, what makes Larry Ellison a worthy candidate? Well, Colin, it's the three S's C, surveillance, and severing the bonds of human mortality. Feel like you're stretching it with that last one, but I will allow it. So, Larry Ellison loves the fucking ocean. Loves the ocean. Like, like he physically. Yes. Oh, all right. Well, Starting in the mid 1990s, Ellison began. Whatever floats his boat. Start, fuck you. <laughs> Starting in the mid 1990s, Ellison began a yacht shopping spree. He first bought the 192 foot long October Rose then upgraded to the 240-foot, 1,800-horsepower mega-yacht Katana, then the 19, the 192-foot Ronin, then the 454, 82-room Rising Sun, and rounded it out with the 288-foot Musashi. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. When he's not sailing boats that could qualify as their own zip code, Ellison enjoys spending his time in his 
actual personal zip code, 96763, a.k.a. the Island of Lanai. In 2012, Larry Ellison paid $300 million to buy 98% of the island of Lanai, the sixth largest island in the Hawaiian chain. Ellison, I'm sorry. So he owns one of the Hawaiian one islands. One of the Hawaiian islands. Yes, one of the Hawaiian islands, an island you could, I don't know how far in space, but you can see it from up there. 98% of it belongs to Larry Ellison personally. Can I buy 98% of a state? Uh, I don't see why you couldn't, you know, just, this is also just my billionaire billionaire bucket list. (laughs) The Luther scale is, is they should know is just an excuse for me to build my billionaire bucket list. Uh, when we, you know, what's, what state would you buy? A real one. Ooh, not Delaware shots fired, not Delaware, not New Jersey. Quoting Ellison directly. Believe it or not, I have fantasized about this island since I was in my 20s. What we want to do is work with the people on the island to create a model of sustainable living. Ellison's property includes all of the island's hotels, the water company, the cemetery, the main supermarket, and nearly a third of the island's private housing. It does not include the private homes of the island's 3,000 permanent residents, for now. For the moment, Ellison is taking the loving God approach to his island working to build a renewable energy grid, sustainable food, a cat shelter, and even for a time, paying local employee wages during COVID lockdowns. Of course, it will be difficult to tell if things ever go south on Lanai, since Ellison bought the island's only newspaper in June of 2021. Again, it's the fascination with print media. Uh, The guy essentially is responsible for the back end of social media as we know it. Okay, all the data collection stuff, all the marketing stuff, all that all of it, okay? Still buys the newspaper. Why? I think it's Why, Larry? I think it's because newspapers for all the grief they get for being the old way of doing it is still where most groundwork journalism happens. Like if if he's worried about an actual reporter with actual notepad and paper walking around on his island, it's going to be at the newspaper. It's not going to be at an aggregator site. Fair enough. It's just I I just find the there is a constant theme that you will hear on this podcast because billionaires just love buying traditional print traditional print media. I think it's also uh like a Citizen Kane thing. Like how how bitchin' is that to own your own newspaper? <laughs> that is that is true. But like I also don't find that they're making their own. They're just like, I want that one. Like they're collecting railroads. And then you know what? Now that I'm saying it out loud. It's- it, it makes a lot more starting sense. to click. Yeah. yeah. So not content to simply succeed on the ocean. Ellison strives to make sure others fail upon it. Ellison founded Oracle team USA to compete in the America's cup, the oldest international sailing competition, actually the oldest international, any sport competition. Ellison's team brought the trophy home to the U.S. twice, winning in 2010 and 2013. Though it should be noted that Oracle Team USA was penalized in 2013 for spying on Team Italy. This is, after all, Larry Ellison, the man who in 2002 hired private detectives to sift through Microsoft's garbage in an attempt to fuck over Bill Gates. So when I thought, when I heard you say that he makes others fail upon the ocean, I just envisioned him Musk-style going to the USSR and buying like a start like a destroyer and being like, oh, yeah, I just I bought my own thing so that I can 
I can sink cruise ships from my private island. It's funny you bring up the Soviet Union because (laughs) as far as I know, he doesn't own a warship, but he does have a decommissioned MiG jet from the Cold War (laughs) because he's also a pilot. (laughs) He loves flying planes. That's wonderful for him. Yeah. Also, the shifting through the garbage thing, super common. Very effective. Well, I know all of your information. Now. No, nobody quite loves spying like Larry Ellison. And also that credit card you opened last week. Terrible rates. Please just cut it. So it's no secret that Oracle and Larry Ellison owe a lot to the deep state. Oracle's name comes from a CIA funded project. The CIA and naval intelligence were Oracle's golden geese in the early years. However, Larry is not content simply to collect taxpayer money in unmarked envelopes. He will go to bat for the surveillance state. In the days after 9-11, Larry Ellison met extensively with the NSA, FBI, and AG John Ashcroft. Less than a month after the attack, Ellison wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Digital IDs can help prevent terrorism. What is with 9-11 just making these billionaires just like... I got to do something. And The crux of Ellison's argument in the op-ed was that the U.S. doesn't need to create a national database of every citizen's personal information because it already exists, idiot. <laughs> Quote, the government already tracks a l- things, a lot of things. Federal, state, and local agencies issue social security cards, driver's licenses, pilot licenses, passports, and visas. They maintain thousands of databases to keep track of everyone, from taxpayers and voters to suspected terrorists. So the question is not whether the government should maintain databases and issue ID cards. They already do. The question is whether the ones we have can be made more effective, especially when it comes to finding criminals. Ah. Uh... There we go. Because, you know, my driver's license information, I might be a criminal. <laughs> they need to be able to keep an eye on me. Of, of course. Ellison went on, quote, my company has already offered to provide the necessary software for free. Because they're already paying for it. <laughs> of course. In Ellison's world, no one would be compelled to enter this new ID system. Oh, okay. Cool. Quote, a voluntary system of standardized IDs issued by government agencies and private companies would prove more effective than a mandatory system. So you see, it's all voluntary. Yeah. It's I mean, a really good thing that peer pressure never works. Yeah. you. I mean, you wouldn't be able to get a social security card or, or a driver's license or do or business d- with certain companies. Or exist. But no one would tell you to do it. Ellison's love for the national security apparatus has not mellowed with time. In 2014, Ellison was one of the few people in the tech industry courageous enough to say that whistleblower Edward Snowden was a total fraud and asshole, since he, <laughs> since Snowden had yet to identify a single person who had been, quote, wrongly injured by the NSA's data collection. He went on to say, quote, we shouldn't ban the gathering of data s- simply because it might be misused comparing the NSA's secret and unconstitutional mass data collection to a caveman discovering that while fire can burn him, it's also good for cooking. Yeah, and we definitely don't burn people anymore. So, you know, success. We only use it for cooking. Anything could have started that forest fire. (laughs) 
In 2020, due to concerns about clandestine data collection, the Trump administration moved to ban the social media app TikTok unless the Chinese-based company ByteDance divested within 90 days. One of the frontrunners to purchase TikTok after divestment was Oracle. Tech website Gizmodo noted the irony of a known intelligence funnel taking control of TikTok due to spying concerns, writing, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. are in the so-called Five Eyes Spying Alliance, suggesting that if Oracle buys TikTok, users could trade potential privacy concerns posed by the Chinese government for privacy concerns posed by the U.S. government and its allies. The sale of TikTok to Oracle was shelved following Trump's loss in the 2020 election. Well, I guess the, the real treasure was the data we voluntarily gave in mass along the way. Oh, but it's not enough that Larry can theoretically have eyes in every corner of the globe. I mean, what good is all that if you're just going to die someday? Like a sucker. <laughs> like a dumbass. <laughs> yeah. In 1997, Ellison founded the nonprofit Ellison Medical Foundation, which specialized in biomedical research on aging and age-related diseases and disabilities. Ellison stated that the focus of this relatively niche field is a result of an overabundance of charities that deal with, quote, mainstream causes like cancer or AIDS research. Yeah, dude. It's, it's such a... Ugh, posers. Ugh, posers. However, the unspeakable implication is that Larry Ellison is on a quest for immortality. I don't... I feel like it's not unspeakable. I feel like it's very much there. Larry Ellison, like all billionaires, has a history of using charitable donations to benefit himself. The most notorious example was in 2005, when, following allegations of insider trading, a federal court allowed Ellison to settle a shareholder lawsuit by making a charitable donation of $100 million to a cause approved by Oracle's board of directors. Between 1997 and 2013, Larry Ellison apparently poured half a billion dollars into medical research. But, like most things in the life of Larry Ellison, focus shifted rapidly and unpredictably. In 2013, the EMF announced it is no longer accepting new applications for grants. When coronavirus began, the now Larry Ellison Foundation announced it would be dropping age-related disease research to focus on COVID treatment. And that worked out really well. In September of 2020, after accusations that the foundation had done exactly jack shit about the pandemic, oh, I guess not. Ellison announced that the research team had been temporarily disbanded. I checked the Larry Ellison Foundation's website. Currently, the investments listed on the foundation website include generally noble causes such as Reach to Teach and the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. However, also included are far more terrifying organizations such as the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and the Lawrence J. Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine. So he just likes to have things named after himself. Is that... Uh, who doesn't? I mean, true... Also, the, the Larry Ellison Foundation giving to a, a Larry Ellison Institute feels like... That's just that's just putting your own money back in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of you're yeah. just moving money around, man. He's like, I picture him holding a checkbook thinking, oh, I like the cut of this Larry Ellison's jib, <laughs> and then writing a check to himself. He just, he sends it off, and then he gets it, then he gets really happy. He's like, oh, finally. Ugh. Got that check. Me memo line, you're awesome, Larry. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Ellison has consistently denied using his charities as a testing ground for eternal life. Whether his quest continues or has, has already concluded, Ellison's feelings about death have never been a secret. His opinion on the matter is recounted in Adam Golan's 2013 book, The Book of Immortality. Quote, death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. 
How can a person be there and then just vanish and just not be there? Yeah, so uh, Larry Ellison, I would assume because of this anger, maybe he was researching immortality, but now I feel like he just has like a battle royale and he just he watches people. He's like and he's like, I just wanted to watch him die from an academic perspective. Yes, from a purely (laughs) academic perspective. While we're on the subject of Ellison musing about the human condition, here's a quote from the first time he saw a therapist at the behest of his first wife. Quote, I remember I was very curious about human nature. I talked about this feeling called love. I don't understand. I don't understand love. I don't understand people bonding to one another. What is it? Oh, okay. So, hmm, new angle, new angles. Uh... Very interesting. So now the question is, is he lying about this to his therapist? I think Larry loves talking and sometimes it betrays him because he'll just keep talking, even though the things he's saying either don't make sense or are terrifying to the average person. So how do we bring this down to a singular number? Well, it's simple. The Luther scale breaks down our subjects into an easy-to-digest but undeniably accurate number. This number is then placed on our overarching arbitrary scale. The first category is their pure purchasing power. The best supervillains have seemingly endless resources to pull from to facilitate their heinous plans. Does our subject measure up, or will they need to rob the Girl Scouts at their local grocery store to buy the ICBM from the Russian mob? The maximum points awarded in this category can be three. The second category is their intimidating presence. The best supervillains don't need to tell you how evil they are. Their presence is enough to cause heart palpitations. Does our subject have pizzazz, or are they a goober without stage presence? The maximum points awarded in this category can be three. The third category is their insane technological investment, or to put it more colloquially, their mad scientist vibes. The best supervillains are at the forefront of technological innovation, leveraging the bleeding edge to make their nemeses bleed. Does our subject push the boundaries of reality to manifest their machinations, or are they still just doing snatch and grabs for grandma's crypto wallets? The maximum points awarded in this category can be three. The final category is whether they hate Superman. Supervillains hate Superman. Does our subject intentionally spend $75 million on a fake presidential campaign just to piss off Superman? Or would he invite Superman to his mega for rails and ales? The maximum points awarded in this category can be one. There is a total of 10 points on the Luther scale. So where does Larry fall on the Luther scale? Again, the Luther scale, very scientific, one yes. through 10. This was rigorously vetted. And now we are here. Larry Ellison has looked at, he owns his own island. He has, on the books, researched immortality, human immortality. Uh, and he is unfathomably wealthy. So let's get into the Luther scale. So in terms of pure purchasing power, Ellison owns 35% of Oracle shares. That's currently. He used to own 60, but has sold off or transferred ownership of a significant percentage over the years, but still owns more than a third of the company outright. In April of 2021, Ellison became the sixth person in the world to have a net worth above $100 billion. His current net worth is still a matter of debate because the stock price changes so frequently. 
I've seen estimates as high as $113 billion, which would put Ellison's personal net worth above the entire 2020 GDP of Morocco. That's an entire country. Yes, it is. That's not Greece. That is not Greece. <laughs> it's in Africa. That's insane. And I again, I, we don't say this, you know, to put down, obviously, the people of Morocco. But, you know, it's the absolute scale of of money that we're talking about here. And he doesn't even own all the shares that he used to own, which means that he even has even more liquid now or has shares in other companies. I'm sure I'm sure he has, you know, if he still owned 60 percent, he would be the wealthiest person in the world. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's not even a question. Which is insanity. It's yeah. crazy. We got to give him a three. Yeah. Three he's, out of three. He's up there. He's pure purchasing power. Three out of three. Yeah. Intimidating presence. Ellison is consistently described as a fitness buff. He may also be indestructible. Well, that's the immortality. I mean, I think he's been indestructible for most of his life. I'm not sure what it is, but the guy seems to get injured a Ooh, lot. Maybe for... that's the, maybe that's it. Maybe he already was indestructible. And he like started researching it and then it turned out that he was just immortal. And now he's like, he has to live with the fact that he's immortal. In 1992, Ellison suffered back to back near fatal accidents. First, fracturing his neck, collarbone and ribs in a body surfing accident. And then later that year, shattering his arm in 28 places after crashing a mountain bike full speed into a railroad track. Holy Bo shit. Both times he fully recovered. All right. All right, Larry. Ellison is currently pushing 80 years old, which cannot be discounted oh. until I obtain proof of biological enhancements from the Ellison Foundation. I also could not find any evidence that he is trained in the deadly arts, though it must be noted he has a pretty bitchin' sword collection, because of course he does. Of course he does. His Did you not hear the names of his yachts? Katana yeah. and Musashi? Yeah, if you had, didn't, go back. There's a theme there. In biographies I've read, Ellison's personal homes tend to feature extensive gardens and or rescue animal shelters, which is, I'll admit, pretty charming, but not particularly intimidating. No. It's not a hammerhead shark lagoon. <laughs> no, it's uh it's no it's no it's no Norman K. Okay, guys. It is unknown but unlikely that the decommissioned MIG jet that he owns is fully armed. So Can we can we get confirmation of that? Can we make Larry Ellison, if you want to airstrike us, there's nothing we can do to stop you. If you want to fund a podcast, lutherscale at gmail.com. <laughs> So I'm gonna give I'm gonna split the difference here. I'm gonna give Ellison a 1.5 out of three for intimidating presence because like he might be indestructible, but like there's he's not physically going to do anything to you. Like yeah, he seems he seems like a pretty well built guy for a man his age. A lot of the stuff he owns, the boats, the island, all that kind of stuff is is awe inspiring. But there's also nothing too frightening about Ellison like in person from what I've seen he seems like he he gives a lot of like cool uncle vibes well that's because he wants to be he cool wants uncle. to be the world's cool uncle he, yeah absolutely yeah insane technological investment and mad scientist vibes the Oracle Corporation isn't well known for outlandish science projects like drones rockets or lasers but the technology it has developed is quietly integral to modern life as for Ellison himself, he may lack the patience or technical knowledge to develop a mass surveillance database or functional immortality, but he can and he will find the people who can. Exactly. And I mean, again, this is something that I think we touch on, you know, with the Elon Musk episode, but 
you know, it is almost much more Lex Luthor to to find the people who are going to be doing that and investing in that and knowing where to kind of put your money, so to speak. Uh, which yeah, that's obviously a talent. Ellison really, really does. But I also don't want to under I also don't want to underrepresent the quiet insidiousness that is, you know, the back end technology, this quiet, you know, databases that are constantly churning and have all this information. Um, you know, a lot of things are stored in there and there are a lot of things that you think are not connected that are way more connected than you than you even know. And that's not to scare anyone. That's not to, you know, drum up any kind of panic because obviously it's going to happen anyway, guys. Yeah. The, but the, the way I think about it is Oracle doesn't build a super cool motorcycle, but they build the road that it drives on. Right. And without it, everything else is nigh impossible, hmm. which is, I mean, you look how long that road is and oh, 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 oh boy, <laughs> they control a lot of what we do. Yeah. But now this brings us to criteria number four. The most important. The most important. Criteria. How likely would Larry Ellison hate Superman? I think Larry Ellison would love Superman. Yeah. I think Larry Ellison would try to be Superman's friend. (laughs) (laughs) I think they would bond over their mutual invulnerability and their Mm -hmm. faith in the U.S. government doing the right thing. They definitely would. That was, yeah. Larry Ellison would absolutely challenge Superman to a gentlemanly race around the Earth, lose the race, and then claim to reporters it was a tie, which Ellison would have won if he hadn't been too busy having, quote, all the sex in the cockpit of his privately owned SR-71 Blackbird. Does he also own an SR-71 Blackbird? I'm forced to assume he does. (laughs) Like, that's a really weird fact to drop into this bit, man. But uh, yeah, so I I don't I don't disagree. I think I think he would love Superman. I think he would lie about being Superman's personal friend. Yeah, I think he'd say, no, the Fortress of Solitude is on my island. Despite it being like in an- a tropical island, yeah, like being in, not near there. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I think I got to give I think I got to give Larry a zero. I don't think he would hate Superman at no. all. I don't uh, think he would work. He definitely would not spend the, the time to antagonize superman yeah so let's put it all together larry ellison final score seven we just added up the numbers yes Uh, again (laughs) final score of seven and it is a uh again very respectable score yeah uh it's higher than i would get (laughs) far better than i would get Um, yeah you know again not Lex Luthor, but not a full Luthor. Yeah, uh, he did get full points for you know, purchasing power, and uh, almost full points for the uh, technological investment. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think those are really the heavy hitters of the series here. Mm-hmm. You know, the technological investment and the purchasing purchasing power are going to give people huge bumps on the scale for sure. So, if Larry Ellison isn't a full Luthor, who is he? So he definitely has a Joker streak in terms of just how yeah. multi-choice his past is. Right. It just he just changes every time. And just nobody... Every single time it's a different story. Mm. Uh, but in my view, the most similar supervillain for Larry Ellison is Ego the Living Planet, specifically as portrayed by Kurt Russell in the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 
In the movie, Ego is a near-immortal celestial intelligence that has spent eons gathering matter around himself to create a planet where he is God. With a little g. In order to increase his power, he has traveled across countless systems, planting seedlings that he can remotely access to terraform those planets into copies of himself. Like Ego, Ellison has created his own little slice of the universe where he is God. Yes, he has an island, but the true realm where reality bends to his whim is the Oracle Corporation. Like Kurt Russell in The Living Planet, Ellison and Oracle are functionally inseparable. Ellison derives his wealth and power from Oracle, and Oracle would not exist without the efforts of Ellison. Oracle software, like Ego Seeds, can be found all over the world, largely unseen, but constantly gathering power through information. Whether Ellison is capable of an Ego-style expansion event, say, by flipping a switch, funneling all the data directly to the NSA, remains to be seen. Probably not. But also... Uh, I wouldn't take that bet. <laughs> At the end of the day, though, it really comes down to personality. Ego, the living planet, and Ellison project an image of a fun-loving, nature-communing, easygoing playboy right up until the moment they annihilate your ass. Both definitely want you to know that they fuck a lot. Yeah. Even when they're coy about it. And... I can or not, that's true, too. <laughs> and I can absolutely picture Ellison sitting on a mega yacht in the middle of the ocean, singing Brandy by Looking Glass to himself. I can't argue. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's kind of right on the money. Yeah. Uh, if you uh, see a picture of Larry Ellison, he even kind of like... Does he look a little bit like Kurt he's Russell? Got the, he's is... got the silver fox kind of hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, I think this is one of the most accurate matchups we've ever come up with here at Luther scale. <laughs> it's, it's to say something when, when someone gets so big that you can compare them to a planet, it's, uh, you know, he's definitely full of himself. He's again, like you said, potentially immortal. Yeah. Either I mean, by might, birth or by research. Be immortal. We have not figured it out yet. We will get back to you. Yeah. So yeah, that's Larry Ellison. End of episode three. That's episode three. Thank you for listening, guys. In the books. Thank you I so much you, for coming back. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If uh, you disagree with our assessment, uh, lutherscale at gmail.com. Yeah. Luther with an O. Don't send us your arguments. We don't want them. Or do and get owned. We will definitely spend way too much time trying to respond. Or no time at all. It's, <laughs> you won't know until you email us. Uh yeah, check out Facebook page, uh, Luther Scale on Facebook. Uh, we'll post another episode in two weeks. Two weeks. Two and weeks. Uh, and uh, hope you'll join us. Yeah. Little insight. You know, maybe we finally get to that robot army. Or maybe instead we're going to be looking into uh, got... something a little bit more foresty. Yeah, we got we got some plans. We got some plans. <laughs> we got some we got some stuff in the pipe. Yep. But we're always taking suggestions, so if you think of someone, you know, LutherScale at Gmail, throw it on the Facebook page. Uh, until then, hearts full, nips raw. Hearts full, nips raw.